today, almost two years after that fateful day in January 2021, that still Donald Trump and his allies and supporters are a clear and present danger to American democracy. From Pacifica Radio, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. Elsewhere in California, on KFOI, Red Bluff Redding, KKRN, Round Mountain, KGOE, Eureka. In Oregon, on KYAQ on the Central Coast, KSO in Cottage Grove, KEPW in Eugene. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania, WLRI, Maui, Hawaii, KAKU. Columbus, Ohio, WGRN, Palinville, New York, WLPP. Rochester, New York, WRFZ, New Orleans, Louisiana, WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico, KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire, WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas, KPSQ, Seattle, Washington, KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin, WADR, Minneapolis, St. Paul, AM950, KTNF, and coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk. Phew! Blanketing the globe, five days a week, usually hosted by Brad Friedman of Bradblog.com and produced by the wonderful Desi Doyen as well. But they're out today. So you got me. I'm Nicole Sandler. I host the Nicole Sandler Show. It's based at NicoleSandler.com. And I invite you to stop by and check out the place. A lot to explore and no paywall. So go have at it and listen because we got a great show for you today. I know Brad spoke with John Nichols just last week. So normally I wouldn't come on his show and bring you another interview with John Nichols. But these are not normal times. (laughs) We are going through these uh, January 6th hearings And with everything else going on, I promise you that my conversation with John Nichols is wholly different from the one Brad had just a few days before. So you can use this to compare and contrast our interview styles. But either way, today, once again, we get John Nichols, national correspondent for The Nation magazine, with a really kind of a deep conversation we got into on how we fix this country. Yeah, just a little uh, no-pressure conversation between two old friends. All right, before we get to John Nichols, let me fill you in on a little bit of the news because there's a lot of stuff happening. During Thursday's third day of testimony before the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol, we heard live testimony from Greg Jacob. He was a legal advisor to former Vice President Mike Pence And we also heard from top-tier conservative retired federal judge J. Michael Luttig. Let me add quickly that on Monday, we also got proof that the whole ruse of a stolen election and the the stop-the-steal nonsense was sitting on ice for four years waiting to be resurrected. 
So we already learned that Trump knew full well that he legitimately lost the election, but continued to declare victory and accuse the Democrats of stealing the win. Well, on Thursday, the former counsel to the vice president, Greg Jacob, testified that aides to the then president told him repeatedly it would not be legal for Pence to overturn President Biden's victory in the 2020 presidential election. But Trump and his allies pushed for him to do it anyway. Judge Luttig, who advised Pence about his January 6th duties, said that if the vice president had done what Trump demanded, he would have sparked a revolution within a constitutional crisis. So with that, the fourth day of hearings begins Tuesday, 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific. One of the witnesses we're hoping to see before they wrap is Ginny Thomas. She is the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. Committee Chair Benny Thompson said the panel would invite her to testify about her efforts to overturn the election. Well, why, you ask? What could the wife of a Supreme Court justice have to say about Trump's attempts to steal the election? Well, a lot. On January 6, 2021, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas's wife and his best friend, Ginny, cheered on the protesters on Facebook. Earlier this year, Thomas admitted that she actually attended the January 6th rally at the Ellipse, but said she left before Trump spoke. Sure. Just over a week after that, we learned that Thomas exchanged text messages with the former president's chief of staff, Mark Meadows, urging him to overturn the 2020 presidential election results. Oh, my God. In May, the Washington Post reported that Ginny Thomas pressed at least two lawmakers in Arizona to reverse Trump's loss. A month later, the Washington Post learned she actually pressed 29 Arizona lawmakers, not just two, 29. On Wednesday, the Post reported that Thomas also corresponded with lawyer John Eastman. He played a key role in the effort to pressure Pence to block the certification of Biden's win. This provoked the House committee to request Thomas's testimony, which she appears to be very open to. She told the Daily Caller she would, yet she hasn't responded directly to the commission as of yet. But in Thursday's hearing, former Pence counsel Greg Jacob testified that Eastman eventually admitted that the Supreme Court would have ruled 9-0 against Pence blocking the election certification after first saying that they would maybe just need an hour or two. The lead Republican negotiator in the Senate, working with a bipartisan group of 19 other senators to draft a bipartisan gun safety bill, walked out of the talks. Yeah, John Cornyn just left, while the lead Democrat, Chris Murphy, remained optimistic that lawmakers could vote on legislation before leaving for a two-week July 4th recess. But John Cornyn appears to have already left. Just saying. Why the urgency to get something done? Because this is never ending. Two people were killed in a shooting at a church near Birmingham, Alabama on Thursday. The gunman, who's in custody, opened fire in a small group church meeting at St. Stephen's Episcopal Church in Vestavia Hills. It's unclear how many people were at the event when the shooting took place. A spokesman for the Diocese of Alabama said the community needs to be lifted up in healing through prayer and unity. Alabama Governor Kay Ivey echoed those words. Hmm. Thoughts and prayers. Hmm. Yeah. Stay tuned. 
And finally, you know you want to know this. A federal judge on Thursday sentenced Dr. Simone Gold. She's a Beverly Hills physician who founded that anti-vax group, America's Frontline Doctors, to 60 days in prison for illegally entering the Capitol during the January 6th attack. The judge also ordered Gold, whose group has spread debunked claims about COVID-19, to pay a fine of $9,500. Doesn't seem like much, but that was the biggest at that point for nearly 200 rioters already sentenced. America's Frontline Doctors has done fundraising, claiming that Gold was being persecuted for giving a speech before the riot. Well, the judge, Cooper, told Gold during the sentencing, quote, the only reason you're here is where and when and how you chose to express your views. But that group, Frontline Doctors, that's where Florida Governor Moron Death Sentence plucked a quack to be our next Surgeon General. I'm not kidding. The so-called doctor's name is Joseph Latipo. And no surprise, Florida is now the only state in the nation that did not order any COVID-19 vaccines for kids five and under. People are already planning Disney and other vacations to Florida, but Florida is now your number one destination if you want to catch COVID. With barely any more testing done anymore except for home tests, Florida has reported three times as many cases as any other state. Thursday alone, Florida also leads in hospitalizations and deaths per day. So my advice, stay away. Okay, that's enough. <laughs> yeah, I think it's time to take a quick time out and come back on the other side with John Nichols, national correspondent for the nation, because we've got a country's future to save. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host today on the broadcast. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the broadcast. But we need your help to do it, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today. That's bradblog.com donate, and thanks. Come senators, congressmen, please heed the call. Don't stand in the doorway, don't lock up the hall For he that gets hurt will be he who has stalled The battle outside region Will soon shake your windows and rattle your walls For the times they are a-changing Welcome back to the broadcast. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host today. And as I mentioned just a few minutes ago, uh, we have John Nichols on the program today. John Nichols, national correspondent for The Nation magazine. And yes, I know that he was just on the broadcast last week. But as I explained, I think this will show you the difference in interviewing styles between Brad and myself. This is going to be different than what you heard last week. So I take you back a few days to Wednesday, the day before the committee focused on Mike Pence's role on January 6th. And I caution everyone to remember that while Pence ultimately did the right thing that day, he tried every which way to be able to do what the orange man wanted him to do. He asked everyone. 
And he also had four years before and a couple since to speak up, and he still hasn't. And as John's about to tell you, there was no way Pence was going to sit and testify. Although he will not be there because he, despite the fact that he had courage on one day, uh, he does not have courage on every day. Courage? Uh, courage. I, I hear Bert, what was his name? Bert Lahr, the, the cowardly lion. When you say courage yeah. in connection with Mike Pence, because there was nothing courageous about him. One day he did the right thing for about, you know, a couple hours. And I'll give him his due. He did something that, frankly, a lot of Republicans don't have the guts to do. Uh He he didn't do what Trump asked him to do. But um, as I'll write about in a piece for the nation tomorrow, uh, when you look at the details of it, Pence looked for every way he could to avoid having to stand up to Trump. He apparently consulted with people and said, (laughs) is there any way I can do what Trump wants me to do? Right. And... The thing is that, that, amazingly enough, the guy who saved the republic was Dan Quayle. <laughs> I know, Because um, right. Quayle told him, no, you got to follow the parliamentarian. you got to do it. You know, you got to do what's required here. It's a constitutional duty. Um, and Pence tried to avoid that. So I don't, I don't happen to believe there's anything particularly heroic about Mike Pence. No. I think that, that he, on that day, for a period of time, did the right thing. And I give him his credit for that. Uh, I think what he did was important. Uh, he saw this process through and, you know, good for him in that on January 6th. The complexity, of course, is now because now is the time when he should be seeing it all the way through and, you know, testifying before the committee. He yeah. should be there tomorrow. He should be saying, you know, exactly what pressure Trump put on him exactly why he chose to resist that pressure ultimately all the details of it this is an essential part of the process and the fact that he is not showing up tells you something really profound about mike pence and that is that he puts his delusional 2024 presidential ambition because there's no way mike pence is going to be president of the United States. he puts his delusional 2024 presidential ambitions ahead of his loyalty to the country. Yeah. See, that that doesn't make any sense. I mean, doesn't he have anybody who, who runs numbers who can tell him, hey, Mike, you're not going to be president. It's not going to happen. So why don't you do the right thing? Exactly. Exactly. And and you see, I think that's actually what's happened with uh, Liz Cheney. Uh-huh. And who's not, you know, look, we should be very honest about Liz Cheney. Not a good player historically. No. I mean, an extreme right winger, a very nasty, cruel, uh, abusive right winger uh, when she was in leadership in Congress, somebody who attacked every member of the squad personally um, in, you know, very cruel and crude ways. Um, somebody who has never met a war she didn't like, yep. uh, who was who voted more right wing than much of the Republican leadership, uh, was actually very much a Trump loyalist in yes. a whole bunch of ways. But she's come over to the other side. She's now actually doing a quite competent job in these hearings. And the thing to remember, though, is why she is doing this competent job in the hearings. It is because I think she knows full well that she's not going to she's not going to get reelected from Wyoming. I mean, that's not going to happen. The polling data is terrible for her. She's not from Wyoming. She's from Washington, D.C. She was a transplant out there just to get a congressional seat. And those people aren't particularly loyal to her. 
And so even, you know, unlike some of these people like Kemp in Georgia and some who can stand up to Trump and maybe survive, I, I don't see any evidence of that. So my sense is that with Liz Cheney, what you're really getting is someone who is, you know, putting on a good performance now and more power to her. I mm-hmm. don't, you know, detract from that. I nope. think what she's saying on the committee is very good. All power there. But we should put it in context and understand she's doing it because she has to enter the next stage of her political life. And it's, she knows that there's no way she can go back to this Republican party. It, it, it will not welcome her. Right. They've already um, condemned her and, you know, thrown her out. And so, um, you know, if you see it in that context, she is, you know, useful at this point, but perhaps not jaw droppingly courageous. Right. Well, you know, it. she's such a, uh, I don't even know what the word, there's a weird dichotomy with her. Because, again, we're applauding her performance on this committee. I think she's doing a great job. But then you look at the Terrific. votes, the, the votes she takes, and she's voting like the most hardline right wing, because that's Liz Cheney. And she is really a conservative as opposed to people like Trump who have no ideology. It's just whatever, you know, is against what we want, it seems. She's she's hundred percent conservative. Right. So um, I, f- I almost feel sorry for her if if I didn't look at her votes and get disgusted <laughs> each time she casts one. You know, I, there are times I'm cheering her on and then I think, oh, wait a minute, that's Liz Cheney. Uh, Here, yeah. help me let let me help you feel a little less sorry. <laughs> okay. Um, after she did one of her, uh, you know, performances uh-huh. on the committee, uh, good performance, by the way. Again, I'm not trying yeah. to trash her. Maybe that's the wrong word to use. Um, but after she appeared and and says and stuff, she sent out a fundraising letter, and a friend of mine who's on her list got that letter, and. The the top of the letter is, you know, there are some things that are more important than party. And, you know, sometimes you have to stand up for the Constitution. I'll sound very good, the first paragraph. But then after that, it's like, and so I hope you'll give me money and send me back to Congress so I can stand up to the Democrats oh, and God. be strong on, on the border and <laughs> strong against their, you know, socialist agenda. And oh, it was every... Every single, I'm not kidding, it's every single thing that the most over-the-top, out-of-the-box out Trump loyalist would say, wow. right? It's, it's very, almost indistinguishable from Marjorie Taylor Greene or Lauren Boebert or all these other folks as regards the attack on Democrat side. Um, the one thing that, that you give Cheney is that she's also willing to call out Trump, right. but even that, I think you have to put in perspective and, and recognize that I think Cheney's ambitions are so great that she's actually, in an odd kind of way, um, she's willing to battle Trump because I think she actually believes the Republican Party is her possession. You know, that it is that she and her father and her family, you know, have a claim on the Republican Party right. that... Trump has sort of been an interloper on. Trump has sort of come in and taken from them something that they see themselves as owning. And and if you see it in that context, I do. Uh, yeah. You, I think, understand a little better why she's so aggressive in her, you know, 
take Donald Trump. Right. Hey, John Nichols, let me let me take you on a little side, a little detour here, because I have agreed with some commentators to much to the dismay of the chat room here that we do need a strong Republican Party. If we're going to have a real democracy, you need a two party system. Right. Uh, you, You need somebody to to fight against somebody to, to, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to uh, give the other side. We have a lot of opinions in this country. So I think we do need a strong Republican party. I don't think they need to be as heinous and hateful and disgusting as today's <laughs> Republican party, but I think we do need, we need that other party. Um, because if it was just one party, it, we, we, it doesn't matter who's in charge. We'd descend into fascism. So the, I think I'm wondering why Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger and a handful of others that, who maybe are not in Congress but are all over MSNBC these days, the never Trumpers. Yeah. Why, why don't they split that party apart? Um, that's a very, very good question. And obviously, I think that that some of them may. Um, but the problem is that we really are a very deeply divided country. And mm. so um, do you really think that Liz Cheney would be all that welcome in the Democratic Party of Wyoming? No, no. And I'm, uh, no, I I'm I, I and, and I'm not saying she should be a Democrat. I'm saying not certainly. We don't, I don't want her. She why don't they split the Republican Party and have a, a make a conservative party and let Trump ah. have the Trumper party? I'm saying split the party in half so that the so real conservatives yeah. can take back the Republican Party. So what you're really saying is, and, and just to be clear here, that you're not particularly a fan of the two-party systems, well, right? No, I, I'm actually ideally, not. Yeah. Um, I'm not either, because I'm I'm, that's where I'm at. Right. Uh, I think the two-party system is an incredibly destructive system. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have it. it. We're stuck with it. Right. But that doesn't mean we should be happy about it, and that doesn't mean we should lie about it. Right. The fact of the matter is that the United States should have four or five parties. That's right. Right. We should have a clearly socialist or social democratic party Hello. on the left. Yep. We should have a, you know, a centrist party, not Joe Manchin type stuff, but, right. but you know, a more centrist democratic party. Uh, there should be a, you know, for lack of a better term, a Wall Street party, a, uh-huh. a small to mid-sized and bigger business party. Um, then you should have a hardcore social conservative party. And probably a libertarian yeah, type part, right? right? I agree. Your, that's your spectrum. You yeah. can have more. But if you look at Germany as an example, a country with a pretty functional democracy uh, set up after World War II for the purpose of actually you know, trying to have something that worked, um, they've got, that's effectively what they've got. They have five or six parties. And the key there, though, is that they have a different election system than we do. Yep. And the reason we don't have, the reason Liz Cheney and Kinsinger and others aren't splitting off, they would have split up long ago in a country like Israel. Right. Uh, in a country like Belgium, there's a lot of countries where it's very easy to form a new party and it can be relatively small and still in the Netherlands also get representation in the parliament. Mm-hmm. And they would have done that. Um, but uh, our system is the worst of all systems in this regard because uh if you split off, you know, say as a member of Congress, you're still going to be running in a congressional district right. that has been drawn to favor one party yep. by and large through yep. gerrymandering. Yep. And it's just the avenue in is very, very difficult. 
So we have a systemic problem, and that systemic problem stands in the way of repairing our democracy and making a democracy that is much more fully realized. And here's another subtlety uh, that, that relates to this. It, does, it comes, brings us right back into the 9-11, or I'm sorry, apologize, to the January, January 6th, 6th committee. Right? Yeah. Um, and, and this is it. Um, this January 6th committee is going to be charged with making recommendations for how to deal with the mess that we're in, right? How to make sure that we don't have another uh, January 6th on January 6th, 2025, or at some future point. Right. And the best way to do that, the single best way to do that, is to eliminate the Electoral College. Yes. Because if you get rid of the Electoral College, then you don't have this situation where a handful of states with close results become dominant. You don't have this situation where um, the determination goes to this sort of archaic circumstance in Congress where the vice president stands up there and they open up boxes and review what's in them and stuff like that. Um, we would have, you know, if you eliminate the electoral college, you'd have a majority rule. That's right. right. And, and, and of course, if we had majority rule, right, nothing about our, our problems would be the same as they are. We would have other problems. Sure. We right. always do. But uh, right off the bat, Al Gore would be president. Two terms as president. That's right. No, he would have served two yes, terms. That's right. You know, that's pretty good given. Um, yep. That would have been a complexity because, you know, maybe, maybe Barack Obama would have succeeded him. Maybe. Um, and because uh, Obama is such a brilliantly skilled political figure. Um, but one way or the other, whatever happened there, if indeed you had a 2016 election between a Hillary Clinton and Trump, Hillary Clinton would have easily been president. Well, because she got millions more votes. And if we're, how dare we call ourselves a democracy and majority does not win, you know, whether it's a presidential election or a vote in the Senate. The fact that the Senate requires 60 votes, there's nothing in the Constitution that says anything about the filibuster. The word is not in there. It doesn't appear. This was a a man-made, made-up, thing that has no legal basis yet it controls everything and it makes minority rule in the senate it not it this is not a democracy that's exactly right and it's a uh in fact we're quite and, and sometimes our right-wing friends actually make that point and they're very excited to say no we're a republic right. not a democracy yes well but in reality we we kind of bowed to the idea of being a democratic republic right yeah i.e where there was a measure of democracy feeding into uh, a Republican form of government. Um, but we, we've gone so far from that that we don't even begin to approximate that idea anymore. Because as you're referencing with the United States Senate, we've got a situation in the United States Senate where uh, roughly a third of Americans can stop anything from happening. Yep. Right? A, yep. a small minority because it's that Every state has two senators, and most of the senator, the Republican senators often come from very small states like yeah, Wyoming or that's Montana. Right. Or North and Dakota. Or, right. Yeah, where, you South know, Dakota where they have Nebraska. the same number of representatives for North Dakota or South Dakota or Nebraska that California has, that New York has, that Florida and Texas yeah. have. And that, that's, it, again, it is so broken that, that and, and to give the the minority 
which in this case represents a real minority of the people, um, more power to overrule the majority is just astounding. How did we get to this point? And for the right to always talk about what the founders would have wanted, well, they didn't have the filibuster. No. And here's another subtlety of it, too, as regards, look, if we talk about the founders wanted, right, in 2016, Hillary Clinton would have become vice president. Oh, That's how the system was initially uh-huh, set up. The person who came right. in second became vice president. Mm. Um, so we don't do we change that because you know we had a situation where the vice president shot the former secretary of the treasury, <laughs> and we started to think, well, maybe we need a different system. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the bottom, but they did make a quite a play out of it. Yes, they Hamilton. did. <laughs> um, but the bottom line is that that the idea of saying what the founders wanted is you know it always throws us off. But if we if we go to that basic concept that the founders wanted a house of representatives to be very small, be democratic, you know, kind of tightly related to the people that the people's voice would be heard in this, in, at least in this context. Well, it's not that anymore. So congressional districts have 600, 700,000 people in them, mm-hmm. but they, the, the numbers vary. And so small states get more representation, right? That their, their individual member, and again, in the case of Wyoming, as an example, mm-hmm. um, Wyoming doesn't have as many people as is required for a congressional seat, but it still gets a congressional wow. seat, right? Yep, yep. And so what we start to recognize is that we've ended up with a system where um, all of the balances are out of place. All of the, the calculations are a little bit off, and in some cases, a lot off. What that means is, what that means is that for a very long time, uh, and it, this does bring us back to the January 6th committee and, and its recommendations or potential recommendations. For a very long time, we had what was referred to as a gentleman's agreement, right? right? Yeah. And what that really meant was that, you know, kind of mainstream corporate folks in the Democratic Party and mainstream corporate folks in the Republican Party, you know, they kind of got along with each other. Mm-hmm. They, they went out for drinks. They knew each other well. They were usually white men of a certain age. Right. And um, the end result is that, that they, things kind of moved toward the center. They moved toward a very Wall Street-friendly, free-trade-friendly corporate center, which wasn't all that good. Right. And it, and it should be you said know? that that's the world that Joe Biden has inhabited for the last 30, 40 years. Yeah. And, and, and frankly, that Bill Clinton inhabited. That's right. Um, Obama broke with it a little bit, but ultimately wasn't able to crack it. Yeah. Um, and so you ended up in this situation where uh, when Democrats got elected, they did things that the average American thought Republicans were going to do. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Free trade deals yep. and a lot of corporate you know, deregulation, stuff like that. That created a circumstance where a tremendous number of Americans who truly felt disenfranchised, disenchanted, cheated politically. And that's what gave you a Donald Trump. Yeah. And so, you know, the gentleman's agreement worked for a long time. It kept us stable, quotation marks around the word stable, but it ultimately set up the instability that we are now in. And so when this January 6th committee wrestles with all of this, right, it's not going to be easy. At the end of the day, they're going to have to make a set of recommendations and, um, the baseline recommendations are going to be as regards, uh, you know, Donald Trump, you know, do you prosecute the guy? Should you right. prosecute him? Of course, the answer is yes, he should be prosecuted. That's not a complicated issue. Uh, but there'll be 
a debate about it. They'll be wrestling back and forth. There's no guarantees that they'll get to where they should on that issue. But once they've dealt with that and dealt with some of the other prosecution issues, hopefully also making a recommendation to Congress that the Congress do a, a sense of the House and sense of the Senate resolution saying that under Amendment 14, Section 3 of the Constitution, Donald Trump is disqualified yes. from seeking the presidency in the future because he violated his oath and uh, participated in, in an insurrection. In right. an insurrection. Right. So they should do some things like that. These are all Trump accountability moves. But once they're done with the Trump accountability moves, they have to make some recommendations as regards how our democracy should work going forward. And I hope, you know, I genuinely hope, that they'll go big, that they will um, lay out a real agenda for how to repair American democracy, knowing full well, knowing full well that some of it will take a long time to get, some may never be gotten, but at least they should make it clear so that the front page of the New York Times and CNN and Nicole Sandler's show and everybody is talking for at least a few days about what we ought to do to create a functional democracy in this country. I hope they get there because if they don't, if we've gone through all of this and their recommendation is, oh, you know, let's tinker a little with, you know, a couple of the rules as regards what the Senate does on January 6th, um, they're not going to get to the heart of the matter. And my great fear is they're going to set us up for, you know, additional ongoing turbulence of the sort that we've had to deal with, you know, now, not just for the last two years, but really we've been in a very chaotic situation since about 2010. Yes. You know, the rise of the Tea Party and, and, you know, the the Republican wave election in 2010, et cetera. So, you know, it's not like like things went bad uh, the other day. Things went bad quite a while ago. Sure. And we need to start to really reflect on that. But uh, have we missed the boat? I mean, that's my concern, the cynic in me. Mm-hmm. You know, occasionally a CY comes on the, at the beginning of my name. I become cynical instead of just Nicole. <laughs> and, and you know, when that part takes over, I get really, um, uh, I go low. I mean, I worry that we missed that boat, that now the Republicans have been able to steal the Supreme Court uh, to the point mm-hmm. where uh, I, I, I'm terrified. Sometime in the next three weeks, we're going to get two big decisions, one reversing Roe v. Wade and the other making open carry legal probably everywhere in New York City. Um, the, yep. the gun problem we have is already debilitating. I, I, I was afraid to go to a march on Saturday because that I thought a crazy person would go nuts with a gun. I don't think you're safe mm-hmm. anywhere anymore. And we're like this on every front. The Supreme Court is about to take us back more than 50 years. I'm worried that the Democrats sat idly by while the rug was pulled out from under them, and I'm afraid it's too late. John Nichols, national correspondent for The Nation, is my special guest today on the broadcast. I'm Nicole Sandler filling in. We'll get his reaction to what I just said. You know he agrees with me, right? Don't go anywhere. More of John Nichols coming up on the broadcast. 
this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. From the wells of disappointment where the women kneel to pray For the grace of God in the desert here in the desert far away Democracy is coming to the USA I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host today on the broadcast. Let's get back to my conversation with John Nichols, because we left you hanging at a very precarious place. What was that I asked him? The Supreme Court is about to take us back more than 50 years. I'm worried that the Democrats sat idly by while the rug was pulled out from under them, and I'm afraid it's too late. Well, you're absolutely right. The Democrats did sit idly by while the rug was pulled out from under them. I'll remind you, Nicole, that you and I, quite a few times over the years, have spoken on this show yes, we have. about the problem. Yes, we have. For many <laughs> it's years. not like it was evident. No. It's not like we didn't see it coming. We did. Um, and a lot, of other, a lot of us warned going back at least to 2008 when we were talking about the bailout of yep. Wall Street, when they yep. bailed out banks rather than homeowners. Rather than homeowners. Hello. And that's, you know what, I hate to say it, position. back in 2008, is when I fell prey to that. I was cut. I was fired by Clear Channel, right? My job, I mm-hmm. lost my job mm-hmm. as everybody did. I lost my home in a short sale and I'm watching sure. billions of dollars go to the banks when they could have still gotten to the bank. But if they funneled it through me so I could pay down the mortgage, I, I right. would have been made whole just as the banks were and I wouldn't be in the position I'm in now 15 years later. Well, let me tell you something else that would have happened. If they had funneled it through you, right, it would have stabilized your situation. That's right. It also would have, pre- it would have prevented the Great Recession. That's right. That we had in 2009, 2010, which was what then fed into the creation of the, the Tea Party and everything else. I mean, a series of disastrous decisions were made. And those disastrous, this disastrous decisions have haunted us to this day. That's right. Um, and many of those decisions were made with the full support and embrace of the Democratic Party. Yeah. Uh, we have to recognize that because if we don't, we don't begin to get to a point where you can start to repair and, and you know, renew. And, exactly. Um, and so this is the big problem. I, here's my big fear, is that the January 6th committee goes soft rather than hard. Uh-huh. It goes small rather than big. Um, that they have all these hearings and they're pretty jaw dropping, right? They, yep. People are people are coming away from them, and I'm, you know, doing a lot of media talking about all this, and, mm-hmm. and it's very clear people are surprised that this has turned out to be a much more dramatic set of hearings than we expected, yep. right? Yep. And and so all of this is, is coming together. It's, it's it's real. It's consequential. At the end of the day, it's recognizing you know, this reality, this meaning, and, and giving us something that we can sink our teeth into, mm-hmm. real recommendations, real clarity, that it gives us pablum. That it gives us and what? it gives us pablum. 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 Yep. 
Got it. Yeah, and if it gives us Pablum, we end up in a situation where I, I promise you um, that it will go away quickly, right? This will just be a report that's filed and it Mueller. goes on the wall. It'll be the Mueller report. Yeah. All over again. Yeah. I mean, in fact, I had a friend who used to deal with this stuff a lot, you know, in, in uh, actually at the state level. And they'd go, they always appointed these blue ribbon commissions, and the commission's job was to address corruption or to do something. And he said, uh, ultimately, he referred to it as fish tank balancers, right? That he had a fish tank, and he always needed something to put under one corner <laughs> right. to, yeah. to make sure that it was even. And he said, that's what, that's it. And, and you never. And eventually never it's up on stilts, to, right? Eventually it's well, on stilts, but, and then it collapses. Well, but the bottom line is that you never take it out, right? right. Once you put it there, mm-hmm. it, it's never removed from that position where you use it to balance a chair, right. you balance a fish tank, something like that. And um, I can tell you, Nicole, if that's what this becomes, if that's what we're given is, you know, a fish tank balance or something that goes on the shelf, um, Trump will be strengthened yeah. by this, no. not weakened. I, I fully agree. And that's what's so frightening. And, you know, John Nichols, I said that I wondered why Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger and the rest of the MSNBC Never Trumpers don't, you know, split the party in half. Well, I wonder why we don't either. We have Nancy Pelosi, Steny Hoyer, Jim Clyburn, leadership in the House is average age is like 80 they what are they holding on for these kids who are coming up are brilliant and they're willing to take control and it's their future and yet nancy pelosi will not let go and has such a stronghold that the democratic party is toothless now we get nothing done so i well, I, I think we yeah, need to split as well well we may never get to that though because the systemic challenges are so great right that you know the talk of the split is always easier than the reality of the split. Yep. You know, and, um, and I've, I've been around it a hundred times where people have said, you know, well, we've got to do it. We've got to do it. And when someone actually has the courage to go do it, right, when they, they actually start an independent project or something like that, they usually end up abandoned, yeah, right? right? They end up alone out there and it, it falls Let's apart. Let's change. <laughs> yeah. Right. And so the, the end result is that, um, I, I, well, I favor, uh, a multi-party democracy. I also favor a battle for the soul of the democratic party, uh-huh. right? A, a recognition that the democratic party is, uh, a modestly better vehicle at this point, uh, maybe a significantly better vehicle considering what's become of the Republican party. Mm-hmm. And so as such, the fight for the soul of the Democratic Party becomes consequential. And that's why these primaries across the country are such a big deal, yep. right? It matters to challenge Democratic incumbents who are failing us. And frankly, it does matter to give support to uh, – uh, sorry about the wind here. It's just getting crazy. I hear. Um, it matters to give support to a rising generation of young Democrats yes. who are, um, you know – who do have a vision for the future, and it's a vision that is an alternative to where um, the party has been going for a very long time. Right. And the big deal about this, the big thing about this is, when you mentioned the three current leaders of the Democratic Party in the chamber, this is a fact I always try to give people for what it's worth. Um, Their combined age is greater than the country. 
Yes, <laughs> right. They're that, older than they're yes. older than the United States of America. Right. Um, and that's something that the founders of the American experiment, who were very imperfect, who mm-hmm. had many many flaws, but the founders of the American experiment tended to be quite young, and what they said, even at the time, as relatively young people, was the one thing we know is that we're flawed. Uh-huh. Right. That's why they allowed for amendments to the Constitution. That's why they had a lot of fail-safes like impeachment and other things put in. They, they knew that bad players were going to rise and that there were going to be real challenges when it came to uh, keeping the experiment on track, mm-hmm. you know, doing anything with it. And so one of the things that, that of all people, Jefferson said, uh, was that you, you can't expect people to live under this forever. Right. right? Because that would be like putting somebody in a straitjacket forever. Huh. Uh-huh. And he wasn't the only person that talked about that. Thomas Paine, who was obviously, uh, to my mind, the most preferable of the founders, the one sure. who, was, who was best on a host of issues. Thomas Paine warned, you know, very passionately about the need to, you know, constantly reform, to, to keep evolving and, and changing. One of the big problems, I think, with the Democratic Party at this point is the Democratic Party has become the party of status quo. It's, it's the defender of was seen as stability or normalcy, right. whereas the Republicans are the radical party, yeah, right? right? And they're the ones really trying to change a lot of stuff. Now, it happens the Republican changes are terrible. Yes. They're indefensibly bad. But at a time when people are hurting and feeling ill at ease or uncomfortable, they're like, yeah, okay, I don't, I don't necessarily like Donald Trump. I don't even think some of this is good, but we got to change something, right? Right. And... The Democrats have to do a better job of being an alternative to that. They have to become a party that folks can say, um, yeah, I'm going to vote for this party because I know things have to change. Right. You know, Nancy Pelosi, as leader of the party, is not signaling change. It's signaling same old, same old, old ideas. She's not part of the future. It is time to move on. And, And I think that these... I hate to say it, dinosaurs holding on for dear life, grasping, you know, to retain what they can of their glory days is hurting the country. It is time to turn power over to the next generation. It's their future, not ours. Well, and uh, remember, this is true in the Republican Party as well. It's not like Mitch McConnell's a young man. That's true. Um, That's true. And and they're about... They're working very hard to reelect Chuck Grassley, who's 88 years old. <laughs> I know. Um, so when we start to see, it's both parties. Yeah. Both parties have a real problem in this regard. And the, the, challenge, the challenge is that, that uh, I, I can tell you right now, I, I cover this stuff pretty closely. We're not going to change the Republican Party anytime soon. Nope. The Republican Party is actually quite happy with what it is. Um, it's working according to plan. Ugh, horrible. Um, I know, but that's the reality. They are on track this year, not certain, but, right? but possibly to take back control of the House, maybe even the Senate. Oh, God. Um, no, you got to face that reality. I know. I'm not I know. saying it will happen. I I'm know. saying that and the it, midterm election is possible. it scares the crap out of me every day. Every day. Well, it, sh- it should. But I then know. you put this, but the Republicans aren't going to change if that's going to happen. Right. Yep. And neither are their donors. Yep. Wall Street folks, the corporate folks are going to say, yeah, we're going to have to put up with a little bit of fascism. 
Yep. Right? Oh, we're going to have to put up with a little bit of authoritarianism. Uh, but, boy, we're going to get those tax cuts. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah, just what we need now, tax cuts. And I need to qualify one last thing, John Nichols. When I said these dinosaurs need to turn it over, it's person-specific because I'd still bend over backwards to have Bernie Sanders as president right now because he may be chronologically old, but his ideas are the future and not the same old, same old. So I'm not an ageist. I'm old myself. Um, but we have tired ideas running everything in D.C., and I think that I think the Democratic Party is just stagnant, and it's losing people because of that. They need to show that they can do something different, and they're showing the exact opposite. And that's yeah. That, I think you're get, I think you're getting to the heart of the matter there, yeah. and that's that's the reality. I don't care how old someone no. is, and I don't care, you know, where they come from, what their background is, yep. etc. As long as they're actually trying to to do some good for the great mass of human beings, the great mass of Americans. And um, it's one of the reasons why I do think you have to have diversity in in your representation. You have to have a real mix of women and people of color, people of different ages, people from different regions. You need that because in that dialectic, if you will, you're likely to get a, a better representation, a better sense of where the country can and should go. Um, and ideally, you know, I think we are slowly but surely in, in some of our elections moving that direction. But boy, um, the resistance to it is so overwhelming, so intense that, um, you know, this is, as you can tell from our conversation, this is a turbulent time. Yes, it is. And I- I'm so thrilled that we can have these conversations. Hopefully they can continue because I truly do worry about what's in store for us, uh, both from the Supreme Court and from the January 6th committee. Um, so much is at stake right now. Like everything is at stake and everything can change ridiculously over the next 30 days. So that uh, is totally true. And in fact, I, I actually do think it's pretty safe to say that, you know, as regards the Supreme Court, it's probably most of this is going to happen before the end of the month. Yeah, I know. And um, so we're looking at some major stuff. Um, what I always say, though, about all this, when bad things are coming our way, yeah, it's not about the bad things that come our way. It's about how we respond to them. It's what we do with the moment we find ourselves in. Um if we don't like what the Supreme Court is doing, as an example, uh, elect a Senate that is sufficiently progressive, that is sufficiently not just democratic, but, but willing to actually right. act on it. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, so I, and I know that's not easy. I'm not romantic about this, but I can tell you, we know what we have to do. We know how we have to respond. You have one of two responses, right? You leave, find another country. Yeah. And I know people uh, who are doing this, that. I know people think that way, but most people don't have that option. Right. Um, or you engage in some sort of very sincere effort to repair the country that you have. Right. I happen to be on the side of the sincere effort to repair the country that we have. And that is going to require a lot of us. But the starting point is going to be in places like Florida, where <laughs> you live. Oh, and. Um, no, look, Florida really it's needs horrible. a new governor Florida, and a new senator. Oh, without <laughs> a doubt. And unfortunately, we don't have the right people stepping up. Um, Ron DeSantis is, I, I, I try to warn people every day, he's more dangerous than Trump. Watch out for oh, this of guy. He is. He's, you're, you're so right. I know. 
And because uh, he's a smart Trump, exactly a better a educated very, Trump. Very, very smart and very quick on his feet. Yep. Nasty. Every uh, bit as cruel as Trump. Every, every bit as cruel and nasty and just, oh, just an evil excuse for a human being. And But he knows how government works, which Trump doesn't. And so he can, right. he can use those to manipulate them in his favor. He is dangerous. And the, the fact that his approval ratings are still high scares the living crap out of me the rest of the country better listen this man is evil uh and it, yeah, it but and see, elon musk is now touting him as his likes choice him, likes him yeah of course and you saw what yeah, you saw the glib remarks that yeah that oh i'm happy to, i'm happy musk. to be to uh, be supported by african-americans oh my god yeah. i know it's jaw-dropping yes and and you end up in a situation where at, just in that little moment, right, that little bit of evidence, you see um, just how dangerous DeSantis is and just how quick on his feet he is, yep. right? Yep. And so here you end up with a guy who really is deeply problematic. Um, and the way to deal with that, quite simply, is to beat him in an election. And, and, um, and so going... And so Florida, Florida has a moral duty, <laughs> So we have Charlie Crist or Nikki Freed. And I hate to say it, Nikki Freed is not going to win. So Charlie Crist, a former Republican, is our only chance to beat uh, evil Satan. It's opposite world again. I know. Uh, yeah. So we could go around in circles. I remember covering, I remember covering a debate with uh, Charlie Crist and uh, Bob Graham. Oh, yeah. I think May- back in, you know, this would have been I, the 80s or yeah. early 90s. Did they run against each other? I think Charlie Chris came after. I know Bob. Chris. Chris ran for uh, Senate once. I'm okay. pretty sure. Oh, maybe a very long time ago. I hope I'm That's not possible. wrong. It, that might have been Florida before I came back here. Will correct me. Yeah. But what I'm telling you is, he's the reason I'm bringing it up is that Chris has been at this forever. Right. He, he is a career he is politician. A permanent fixture. Yeah. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day. Um, I know enough about having it covered politics for a very, very mm-hmm. long time that when you're faced with a truly major threat, yep. um, you need a popular front, right? You need people to come together yes, you do. Uh, from the left all the way over to the center and even the center right yep. to stop the, to prevent the crisis. Yep. Right. Yep. And so to me, Florida, I've got a relative level of clarity about Florida. We could we could right? do worse know- than Charlie Crist. You know, when when he was governor last time and he was a Republican, um, I did a morning show with a, a great political reporter. I don't know if you know Jim DeFiti or not, but Jim. Oh, yeah, Jim, sure. Jim used to call Charlie Crist the, the best Democratic governor Florida's had in decades. And Charlie Crist was a Republican. So. You know, if that's what we have to go back to, so be it. We just need to get rid of DeSantis. Yeah, because I think DeSantis, I mean, for a variety of reasons, DeSantis's play, and I, in a, the book I did a while back on, on coronavirus criminals and pandemic profiteers, yes, I remember. Yeah. I've got a chapter on DeSantis in there. And, um, and, and, when, and it's the interesting thing because the book has a, you know, deals with a lot of different issues and a lot of different problems. But the, the chapter on DeSantis is actually about democracy. And people might say, well, how does democracy relate to coronavirus? Well, in Florida, as you well know, local governments were trying to do the right thing. <laughs> I know. To protect and getting people, fined. to vaccinate them. Yep. Exactly. And 
far from being a Ronald Reagan, small government, you know, problems are best solved at the local level Republican, Ron DeSantis was a big government, big authoritarian governor. That's right. I mean, he superseded school boards and village boards and city councils, uh, county commissions to get exactly what he wants. And he's still doing it. Still doing it. Exactly. And so when I look at Ron DeSantis, I genuinely see somebody who is more threatening in the long term uh, than probably any other player in our politics. And here's, I'll give you one maybe final thought on this, is I remember back in 2016, I was talking to a senior Republican, somebody who had been around, had actually run for the presidency at one point. Um, And so we have known for a long time, very conservative Republican, but a very sensible Republican. And this is a guy who was backing John Kasich for the Republican nomination that year. Okay. And Kasich wasn't doing that well. And I said, well, what are you going to do if you have to choose between Trump and Ted Cruz? Oh, God. And the guy said, oh, I'll go for Trump. And, you know, I was thinking at that time already, Trump is incredibly dangerous. He's an incredibly bad player. And uh, he, this guy said, no, but remember, Ted Cruz has, he's a very smart man. Yeah. It's you hard know? to believe, so but at apparently the end of the he day, is. At the end of the day, if you're choosing between a very smart very dangerous person and somebody who doesn't know anything about government. I mean, as bad as Trump was and is, um, I always remind you, it could be worse. That's true. I'm with you. And I would take the dumb one over the smart one who knows how things work and how to manipulate it. Because Trump, as he did and continues to do, tries to do things that you just blatantly cannot do. And he'll eventually get shut down where a Ted Cruz or a Ron DeSantis knows how to work, how to game the system because they do have the brain power. So uh, all dangerous, just in different ways. And the the higher brain power, the more the dangerous. So. Well, that brings us full circle to the January 6th. Uh, and it because does. Yep. At the end of the day, there is at least the possibility, not the certainty, but at least the possibility that Donald Trump did enough to get himself in real trouble. Well, uh, well you know what? Just hope that that's he, the case. And here's the bottom line. He did do enough to get himself in real trouble. He should be behind bars. The question is whether or not our government, our democratic in charge government will do the right thing or or will chicken out and and let them off easy and that's my fear as as you stated and earlier that, and that's why we're talking today that's right john nichols you are you're the best i love talking to you i could we could, i could go for hours i so appreciate your time and your input um i always cherish our conversation so thank you so much for joining us today it's an honor to be with you i apologize for the wind um we are in a, we've got a little bit of a storm coming in and uh, super hot here and yeah. super windy. And, but I, uh, I so appreciate talking to you. Well, so be, me be too. strong. I'll talk to you soon. Sounds great. Thank you so much. John Nichols of The Nation. Yeah, I could talk to John Nichols all day, any day. <laughs> so I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. I figured we're in between hearings, right? So, um, a little reflection is always good at times like these. Uh, coming up next week, the hearings pick up again. Tuesday, 1 p.m. Eastern start time. Thursday, 1 p.m. Eastern start time. And that's all we know so far. 
but I say keep them coming, the more you know. And with that, we're done with another edition of the broadcast. I'm Nicole Sandler. As always, you can always find me at NicoleSandler.com. That's the home base for my show. There's no paywall there, so explore, look around. If you like what you hear, uh, subscribe, listen regularly, and maybe you'll want to support the show too. Uh, In the meantime, Brad Desi will be back next time, and I'll pass along Brad's words of wisdom. Good luck, world. Oh,